0: Well, good afternoon, everybody, or whatever time it is, depending on when you're listening, to After Further Review. Mark and John, I'm John Pelkey. Mark Ferreira with me, Jeff Taylor, our producer as well. And uh, we welcome you on this Friday. Hope things are going well for you wherever you are and that you're keeping safe and happy. And uh, hope that you enjoy today's deep dive. Before we get into the 1969 Mets. Can't wait. And the Dickens-like notes I have taken for this show. Remarkable. Oh, my God. Uh, Just checking checking in, gents. How's everything going? Anything? uh, I guess we should mention that uh, the change of the Washington Redskins name is now the second story on the list of Washington Redskins stories. Um, Anything else in sports we should just throw out there to let people know that nominally our sports show is paying attention?
1: Mark? Has has, Has anything happened? This morning, except uh, just this titillation. These well, well, they released the story. A story coming. No, no, no. Yeah, they released the
0: story. The story came out. The story came out with with men who had accused the, them of uh, members of the organization sexual harassment. Blah 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 blah. All of that happened. Okay. Uh, you can you can search for that. The story is out there. Uh, most of the women are anonymous because there are non disclosure agreements. And uh, the only thing that really happened today, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that Dan Snyder issued a statement saying, you know, that they. They wanted to change the culture, um, and I didn't really spend a lot of time with it because I'm doing this. But I think that's where it stands right now. There's a story about the culture there being bad. A number of the people who've just been fired or quit, including Larry McMichael, the uh, or is it Larry Michael? Larry,
2: Larry Michael, the voice. Larry Michael. So radio yes. Dan
1: Snyder has, is not in the
0: crosshairs with this He thing. He is not as far as having harassed anyone, but he is in the crosshairs as far as allowing wow. the culture, and then there there are some questions just to cover up, blah, 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 all of that. That's, that's the big story, but I don't think anything else is broken on it, if that's your question.
1: All right, sounds great. All right, well, not sounds, great. Sorry, sorry for being, no, sorry, I'm great in terms of catching it up. You know, <laughs> I haven't, uh, you know, it's been... Eighteen hours since I looked, so uh, amazing things have wow. happened. But it, it's amazing, yeah. You know, I mean, what the heck,
2: <laughs> Larry? Larry Michael, I think, was the only still employed uh, accused.
0: Yeah, the other two, he and he retired. Uh, but the other two gentlemen whose
1: names escape me, who were Alex named at least Santos
2: in- was one of the names. He was yeah. fired before any of this started to come out, and I can't remember the other name.
1: And I know there's speculation as to if the commissioner has the right to take him out, <laughs> to take Daniel Snyder out, right? Uh a la Daniel Sterling and uh, I believe Jerry Richardson, um, you know, in basketball and the NFL, the. The commissioner essentially said you can't own the team anymore, and right. so we'll see if if the fact that he's allowed that culture to exist, and I don't know how many years again, I haven't I haven't read the, the latest, but if it's this ongoing systemic thing in the DC in the in the Washington Redskin uh, organization, it then seems, I don't know. I think I think Goodell has the, a perfect right.
2: It seems recent, other than the radio voice, and it really seemed. Uh, I'm going out on a limb here, so do not. Uh, this is not a fact, but. Seem to be the Gruden era.
0: Yeah, it seems to be they're focusing on that. Now, I don't know if that's just because of the women who have come forward at this time or from that. Uh, I will say, and and we'll wrap this up because we really need to jump into the deep dive because it's really deep. Um, But uh, there was an NFL reporter for The Washington Post who's covered the rest of the NFL as well. And she said she was asked if she was surprised by any of this. And she said no. But she also said let's let's not pretend that this is uh, something that uh, only happens in the front office in Washington. So, you know, and, and Jeff and I talking before the show, make it a point or, you know, pretty much any large company at this point, we're finding that this sort of toxic masculinity is, is a thing. So hopefully that'll be taken care of. I don't I think Dan Snyder will probably be able to weather this. Who knows? Um, Great. And, and I'm in favor, by the way, my I, I will say this before I get started. I am in favor of the team changing their name to the Dukes. That is that is now my favorite and that is to honor Washington, D.C. DC native, the great Love Duke Ellington. that. Love I think that, that, that has a th- – that's got legs. You could keep the color scheme even because really Dukes could be anything. James Madison's purple and gold. They're the Dukes. Um, but that is now – I am on the record of saying that I, I could really get behind the Dukes.
2: And talk about a way, uh, cool – I know that Mark's going to hate this, but the D.C. Dukes. That sounds yeah. awesome.
1: Yeah, the D.C. No, Dukes. You know what? That works for me. Oh, good. That works for me. Because the C is God. in the middle? The D.C. The D.C. Dukes works because there's the C in between. Good. See, so it breaks it up. the rhythm. There's dynamics. There's not just Washington wow. Warriors. You know, wow. it, just, it doesn't work for me. Sorry. See, I'm in that mode today. I don't know. There's There's got to be a
0: title for a book there. The Inconsistent something of Mark Ferreira. Huh? You know, just the inconsistent. Is, just a picture of you. The inconsistent. Consistency is
1: the death of art,
0: Stanislavski. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And to that. Stanislavski, one of the few people who won't figure in our Mets deep dive. (laughs) One of the few is about the only only one that escaped. (laughs) That's right. So let's let's get into it. I I wish we had. I I, when I was putting this together, by the way, I was listening to the top pop hits of 1969. Many of them were good. Many. Not so good. Sugar, sugar. There's always. I love that song. There's a lot of crap on the radio. At all times. Let, can we just say that? A lot of crap on the radio at all times. 1969, though, did have some good music. So I want to take you back then to January 20th, 1969, and the inauguration of Richard Milhouse Nixon. January 20th, 1969, Nixon was inaugurated, bringing in the second most uh, corrupt administration in the history of this company, country, excuse me, I'll, I'll let everyone else decide what number one is. Most, uh-huh. More importantly to what we're going to talk about here, that eight days earlier, the New York Jets defeated the Baltimore Colts in what was then considered the biggest upset in sports history. Mark, you would agree with that? You remember you were nine years old or you were eight years old. You were going to turn nine in 1969.
1: I don't uh, remember it.
0: You don't I... have a memory
1: of it. I do not. I, I, came, I came a little late. It came around 1970 was really when I started to okay. come online with sports. Okay. Well, that was considered, as you know, the
0: upset of the century. Uh, that Colts team was considered maybe the best team in NFL history. They had gone through the season outscoring their opponents, and more particularly that defense just held their opponents to minuscule points per game, uh, and it was an enormous upset. It lasted as the biggest upset in sports history for about nine months. Yes. Because on October 16th, 1969, the impossible happened. The New York Mets, a team in its eighth year of existence, that over its first seven years, 1962 to 1968, averaged 105 losses per year that was their average but they won the world series how now mark you don't remember this one either because i know you got into baseball baseball is your first love
1: i i remember a little about the uh i remember a little bit about the 69 nl west race between the braves and the giants but i don't remember the season that much i certainly don't remember the uh i remember the the braves being beaten by the mets and i vaguely remember the mets um, you know, at that point in time,
0: I have a little bit of a memory because I grew up in Washington, DC as the, with the Baltimore Orioles as my team. And that's who they, uh, will defeat as you'll find out in just a bit here in the deep dive in that 1969 world series, New York team defeats another Baltimore team, uh, much to the chagrin of Richard Nixon, who we just saw there for a moment. If you're watching on the YouTube, um, but that's how I just, I barely remember because that, that Orioles team was, was so good, much like the Colts team. Yes. Um, but let's discuss how we got here, shall yes, we? Yes, let's. Let's take a step back a dozen years or so to 1957, when both the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants left New York. Now, Walter O'Malley, who owned the Dodgers, took a lot of heat for this market. As you know, he was one of the most hated men in the New York area for a very long time for moving his team to Chavez Ravine. Yes. But really, who you should save that hatred for is a man named Robert Moses. Now, Robert yep. Moses held so many titles in New York City. Uh, he was parks commissioner. Uh, he was construction commissioner. He held just a dozen or so different jobs in New York City. But basically, he, invo- he was in charge of roads, construction, construction. Uh, neighborhood development, all of that. He he was the most powerful man in New York, and one of the most powerful men in in America for forty fifty years, essentially. Um, Robert Moses basically would have had the power to keep both of the teams in new york most importantly he could have kept the brooklyn dodgers the beloved brooklyn dodgers because by that time the giants mark and no offense to you i know it's your team but uh people in manhattan really weren't paying that much attention to the dodgers did the giants because uh the, the polo grounds was a horrible place to go see a baseball game it was dilapidated and no one should ever have to go there the dodgers were still well loved Ebbets Field was well-loved, but it it had outlasted its usefulness. So Walter O'Malley, who was the owner of the Dodgers, actually wanted to build a retractable roof stadium using his own money and a stadium that the team would would own, and it would be in the borough of Brooklyn. And all he really needed Robert Moses to do was to use his power to condemn a piece of land um, near the railroad yards in Brooklyn, and Walter O'Malley could then purchase that land uh, at a fraction of what it would be worth if it weren't condemned and could build his stadium there and the Dodgers could stay in Brooklyn. Robert Moses didn't like that idea because he built roads and bridges. He didn't like public transportation. That stadium would have been at the end of the Long Island uh, Railway and another, uh, a number of other, uh, it, was, it would have been a rail spur where you could have traveled to that stadium without your car th- throughout the New York area. Moses didn't like that because he built bridges and he built roads and he liked tolls to pay for him to build more bridges and more roads. So he refused to do it because he wanted a team in Queens. Walter O'Malley pulled up and moved to New York. The Giants said, well, or excuse me, to California. Giants said, we're going to do that as well because we're just going to leave the city to the Yankees because they really are the team of note at this point. They all move to the West Coast and the only team left in New York are the New York Yankees. That's how the world opened up for the expansion New York Mets, which came around in 1962. Mark Ferreira, not yet. There, there's actual artist rendering of Mark Ferreira. Yeah, that's about uh, how old I was in 1962. Yes, you're, you're, about, you're about to turn to the Mets become an expansion team in a, <laughs> a
1: very good representation, by the way.
0: 1962, 1962 season. They come into um, – Major League Baseball with one other team. Mark, do you know what that team was? Houston
1: Colt 45s. The
0: least. Houston Colt 45s. Well done. Who will be the Colt 45s until 1965 when they
1: move into the Astrodome and they become the Houston I, I, I will say that, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the Baltimore Bullets and the Houston Colt 45s, two pretty hilarious names that would never, never right. fly, never fly today. Right. Yeah, Should should point out the that Baltimore the Baltimore Bullets, that's The pretty Baltimore pretty Bullets, who were pretty very, very good. Game.
0: Yeah. Very, very good. They were also eliminated by a New York team in 1969. So New York and Baltimore were at odds throughout. Anyway, the 1962, the Mets move into Shea Stadium uh, right next to LaGuardia. It's essentially, it was built on a landing strip four at LaGuardia. Uh, it's hysterical. If anybody chooses to go back and I watched every single game of the 69 World Series in preparing for this. And in, in the highlight films, there are times where the, the Jets are so loud in the audio that they've put together that it's disconcerting. So you can imagine what seeing a game at, at, uh, at Shea must have been like in 1962. It was also uh, not a lot of fun because, as I mentioned, between 62 and 68, the, uh, the Mets averaged 105 losses. Mark, in their first year, in their first year, they were 40 and 122. That's rough. That's rough. That's not good. That is, and they may really not have been not, that good. That is the
1: opposite of not ungood. No. Uh, but
0: that said they outdrew the New York Yankees. They became really, they were adopted by New York. And I think part of it was, uh, the fact that there's more met in most of us than there is Yankee, at least at that time. And the sure. Yankees had won so much and they were always there. And it had, it had grown a little bit stale and grown a little bit boring. Uh, New York took to the Mets. One of the reasons that they took to the Mets was the great Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel was the first manager. And there he is. If you're watching on YouTube, Casey Stengel was the first manager of the New York Mets. Now, at this point, Casey Stengel, this is 1962, had his first managing job in Brooklyn in 1934. 1934, he took over uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. He then also uh, managed the Boston Bees, who then became the Braves and then moved to Milwaukee. And and he managed the Yankees for 12 years, 1949 to 1960. And uh, had, I think you would agree, Mark, a little bit of success as a Yankee manager.
1: Did I lose you, Mark? Just a tad between 49 Um, and 60. Yeah, I would say I'm here. I'm here. In that period of time, Uh, Casey Stengel had a little. Had a little bit of success, just just a little
0: bit of success. Um, Seven World Series, 10 AL pennants uh, when he was there. Um, As I mentioned, they were just the team of note, uh, not only in New York, but in in baseball. They just ruled baseball in the 1950s and into the early 1960s. Should also be pointed out that in 1962, uh, Casey Stengel celebrated his 50th year in the major leagues. He broke in as a player in 1912. And I do believe I did not look this up. But I think I remember from something I read, he actually got the first hit ever at um uh
1: uh Fenway Park. I think Casey Stengel as a player was credited with the first hit at Fenway Park. Anyway. I, I, I want to interrupt you. You said 1934 yes. is when he started his career as a manager. Yeah. And and now we're talking 62. That's 28 years That's 28 years. Yeah. But the difference between 1934 and 1962 seems a lot larger than 28 years ago, 1992 to now. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it's the same span of time between thirty four and sixty two. Yes, there's a depression. Yes, there's a world war. Yes, there's, you know, all of that other stuff happening. And so it expands time, if you will. But I always find that very fascinating. Well, thirty four seems like ancient history compared to sixty two. Well,
0: and there were, you know, if you think about it, because in nineteen thirty four, all the teams traveled by train. Um, yeah. There were there were no teams west of St. Louis at that point in time. So by t- 1962 when everyone he traveled on chartered jet and we had teams uh, you know as far west as we mentioned, we had teams in San Francisco. Uh, we had a team in Los Angeles soon to have a team in San Diego as well. So uh, yeah, it really was a different world. 34 to 62 I think is is a much bigger culture shock, uh, no doubt, than 1992 to, uh, 2020 though. Thanks. Thank you for making me feel old. I greatly appreciate that. Uh, Casey, Casey Stengel, uh, is is also well known for, um, his Stengelese, which was, uh, Casey Stengel. It was always said of him that he hated dead air. So when he was asked something, he would just start talking and he would talk himself into an answer. And sometimes he would talk into some of the most ridiculous boy talk about word salad. He was really, really good at that. And there are many interviews with him that I've watched throughout the last couple of weeks that are hysterical. But two of my favorites are about his Mets in 1962. Um, the, the best one being, I've been around this game for 100 years, and I've seen ways to lose them I never knew existed before, <laughs> which is a great quote. And another one comes from 1964, I believe, 64 65, when uh, Lyndon Johnson went to um, – Went to uh, Shea Stadium to watch a game. And uh, Stengel said he wanted to see poverty. He came to see my team. So I thought those are great Stengelese quotes. Uh, Stengel was there really to sell tickets more than anything else. He sure. was beloved. And at that time, expansion teams were uh, were not given a lot of tools to succeed. You, you would agree with that, I think, probably. Yeah, not like they were given later on. They were set up to fail. Well, 1968 the Dodgers parted ways, had parted ways with Casey Stengel, and they hired Gil Hodges. And Gil Hodges was on the 1962 uh, and uh, 1963 New York Mets. He finished his career as as a Met, um, as a player. He was an eight time All Star, three time Gold Glover, won two World Series, one with Brooklyn in '55 and Los Angeles in '59. He was uh, absolutely beloved. Um, he he was so beloved that uh, when he struggled in the nineteen fifty two World Series, um, he had been hitless in his last four regular season games, and he was hitless in all seven games against the New York Yankees, a seven game series that the Dodgers lost. Um, Father Herbert Redman of the Saint Francis Catholic Church in uh, <laughs> in Brooklyn said this uh, as. The parishioners came in and sat to, for mass, said, it's too hot for a homily. Keep the commandments and say a prayer for Gil Hodges and sent them all home. He was just, he was a beloved player, Mark. He was a great player. He is a borderline Hall of Famer. And in fact, many, many, many baseball people feel that Gil Hodges should have been in the Hall of Fame by this time, if, uh, if not just for his playing, but also for his, uh, sure. his, his managing, um, yep. which cut short by an untimely death but he had a great deal. He is really the largest reason that the Mets were able to turn things around. Um, Keep in mind that one of the things that Gil Hodges did very, very well, and this is something that Casey Stengel did, and it was really taken from the great John McGraw was, uh, was the platooning of players, which wasn't done often um, or as often as it probably should have been in baseball early on. Usually there were nine, 10, 11 guys who played almost every game. Hodges was a, Big for using his entire bench. He, he felt it was important to get everybody involved, and that will pay dividends uh, down the line for the New York Mets. Uh, just to give you the idea that here are Gil Hodges' career numbers um, over 18 seasons. He was a 273 hitter, 370 home runs, which is second all time in Dodgers history, too, Mark. <sighs>
1: Uh, well, I would say Duke Snyder.
0: Duke Snyder is absolutely correct. We have for you absolutely nothing, but well done. Uh, so Gil Hodges takes over in 1968 for the New York Mets, and they have another uh, uh, stellar stellar year. They go 73-89, and 89, which is only the second time in their history that they didn't lose 100-plus games. They only lost 95 in 1966, which... A little foreshadowing was the year the Baltimore Orioles won their first World Series. Um, And both of those seasons, they finished ninth in the 10-team National League. So uh, Gil Hodges, in his first year, did not really inspire a great deal of confidence. However, we move forward to 1969. And 1969 is a whole new ballgame in a lot of respects. In 1969, Major League Baseball had another expansion era. The Seattle Pilots. And the Kansas City Royals joined baseball, as did the San Diego Padres and the Montreal Expos. The uh, Pilots and the Royals in the American League and the Padres and the Expos in the National League. The Pilots would go on, by the way, to become the Milwaukee Brewers. If people are wondering what happened to them, that was not the Mariners' first name. They, were, uh, they, were, they became the Brewers. So because of that, in '69 we split into divisional play for the first time. There was a national league East, national league West, American league East and American league West. So for the very first time you were going to have a playoff round before the world series. Now it's important for a couple of reasons, obviously keeps more teams involved and more cities involved, but it also means that you only have to finish at the top of a six team division, as opposed to a 10 team league. And uh, that, uh, that really was a game changer. I'm sure Mark, as we take a short break from the story, I'm sure there were baseball purists who screamed that that would be the end of the game when that happened.
1: Oh, of course. There's always the purists that just just scream and shout from the rooftops, don't change a thing. This character has now made a third appearance in this show. Don't yes. change a thing. Baseball is the way it needs to be. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it. I think the divisional – play when they expanded in 69 i thought it was a great idea i mean you know who's who's going to have a problem with you know with the nlcs the the only real problem is that they made it a five game series so you have you play 162 games and then you've got five games a best of five where everyone's three first to determine who goes to the world series that's pretty quick they they didn't change that either until I don't know. I want to say the eighties at some yeah, point. In time. No,
0: it was, it was pretty late. It, it was pretty late. Yeah. It, it, the, uh, the other thing that they didn't do was they didn't really divide up the teams particularly well, they put both Seattle and Kansas city in the yeah. American league West. And,
1: uh, that, well, that, the NL West is a, is a classic because in the NL West they had, as a matter of fact, this team won the 1969 uh, NL West division, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, the Braves are in the NL West. The Atlanta Braves are in the NL West. The Houston Astros are in the NL West. The Cincinnati Reds are in the NL West. You've got a team from Ohio, Georgia, and Texas—all states in play this year, by the way—that uh, are in the. NL- <laughs> That are in the NL West, and you summer. only bring this up because you're still angry that the Braves were in
0: the NL West and uh, kept a hundred-plus winning San Francisco Giant
1: team out of the playoffs in the uh, in the 1990s, I believe. 93 season, That yeah. was the last year before they realigned after the after the strike. They realigned in 1995, and the Braves were actually in the NL East. What a concept! Yep, yeah, absolutely. So that was uh that, that was the lay of the land. And as I mentioned though, in
0: nineteen sixty nine coming into the season, the Mets appeared to be maybe a little bit better. And part of the big reason was their pitching staff led by Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. Now there's Tom Seaver. He is the nineteen sixty seven rookie of the year, sixteen game winner in nineteen sixty seven. Uh he's he's ten time all star, by the way. He'll finish up his career twenty years uh, after his rookie season in '67, with 311 wins and 205 losses, and a 2.86 lifetime ERA, which is just remarkable. It's hard to overstate yeah. how popular uh, Tom Seaver was. He was I what I remember growing up. Right. And again, I was uh, five in 1969. Started really watching baseball in six, when I was seven. So a couple of years later, Tom Seaver was really among the two or three pitchers that you mentioned when you were talking about the best pitchers in baseball for eight or nine years, probably.
1: I don't think there's any, I yeah, do there's any he along that. with Bob Gibson, you know, Bob Gibson, I think uh, he was mentioned uh, with that perhaps he, Juan Marichal, but I'm not sure, but Bob Gibson, Tom Seaver, you're right. Tom Seaver, uh, those numbers you just said, you just quoted are extraordinary numbers yep. for a career. And yet John, and yet did he, was he unanimously elected to the Hall of Fame? He was no. not. He was not. <laughs> Once Somebody. again, baseball writers are the lowest form of
0: under. They I really are. I completely agree. Unbelievable. Uh, but, uh, in uh, sixty nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight, I mentioned that the uh, the uh, the Mets did not have uh, great seasons at all. They were they right. were still very bad. Uh, Seaver won twenty five percent of the games both years. That were he. <laughs> Uh, he, it's, he won 16 games each year. Um, in 67, 18 complete games. I'm going to bring up complete games because there's a lot of complete games happening back then, something you don't see today. 14 complete games in 68. So we're starting to see with Seaver and then Kuzman, who spent 19 years in baseball. Two-time All-Star obviously did not have the career that Tom Seaver had, but there were there were a few years there where Kuzman was as good as anybody in baseball. In '68, he was 19 and 12 with a 2.08 ERA. In '69, 17 and nine with a 2.28 ERA. Yeah, any, any complete games, 17 and 16 respectively in those two years as well. So coming into the regular season in 1969 with a manager who uh, everybody felt had a better grasp on what was happening. Uh, than Casey, who was darned entertaining. Um, but the game had, in many ways, uh, as well as the language, had passed him by at that point in time. Um, His but, life was, uh, was quickly passing him by. At it really was. He's the uh, He was fired when he was 70 years old by the yeah. Yankees, and That's he said quote. he'd never make the mistake of being 70 again, which is another great quote uh, yeah. by Casey Stengel. So coming into the 69 season, the, the Mets, um, they were they were not considered a contender, but I think people felt they were on on an upward spiral at that point in time. Um, So let's move to the 1969 season, April of 1969. Um, The Mets come out of the the gate slow. Nobody, Nobody sees much. They're nine and 11 and in third place at the end of April, they go 500 in may they're 21 and 23 by the end of may. They're still in third place. Now realize again, third place out of six teams right. for the Mets. That's, you know, had they finished the season in third place, I don't think there's any doubt that Mets fans would have been ecstatic. Would they, have they would been have thought con- that
1: would have. Yeah. would have been considered a successful season.
0: They didn't actually get over 500 until the third of June. Um, they lost five in a row, May 22nd to May 27th. They lost one to Atlanta, three to Houston. And I should point out that their, um, their sisters, the Houston Colt 45s that they came into the league with in 1962, uh, owned them. Even in the 69 season, they just could not get wins in Houston for whatever reason. Interesting. And then they dropped one to the, uh, to the expansion San Diego Padres. They opened the season to a, with a loss to the expansion Montreal Expos. But then things really started to turn around for the Mets. They won 11 in a row following that. And by June 10th, they were 29 and 23, and they were in second place. Wow. Yes. Now, they would stay in second place until Wednesday, September 10th, when they would beat the aforementioned Montreal Expos to move into first place for the first time in uh, Mets history. But a couple of things happened while while all of that was happening. On the 23rd of June 1969, Mark, Warren Berger was sworn in as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And that would have uh, ramifications for uh, Richard Nixon down the line in 1973 and 74 and in the, on the 28th of June that year were the Stonewall riots in, um, in New York, which was the beginning of the uh, LBGTQ movement uh, is generally considered the beginning of that. Um, now, while, while all of that is going on, the Chicago Cubs, the long suffering Chicago Cubs at this point in time are putting together one hell of a season. They, they, are in first place. They win their opening game. They're in first place on day one. They would stay in first place for 156 games. They were 16-7 and seven in April, managed by Leo DeRocher, who did not believe in the platooning we talked about with Gil Hodges early on, Mark. Uh, he played almost the same starting eight, game in and game out, as the season went on, he shortened his rotation, shortened his bullpen, so that by September, the, uh, the Cubs were struggling mightily. Um, to give you an idea of what happened to them down the line, on August 13th, there we see the standings. Chicago 74 and 43, St. Louis 65 and 52, and New York. 62 and 51. We're going to take St. Louis out of the equation for the rest of this because they fall along the wayside. Um, but um, after from August 14th on for the rest of the regular season, the New York Mets go 14 and 3 for the rest of August, 24 and 8 in September and October. They go 38 and 11 down the stretch, which is remarkable. In that same time, the Cubs go 18 and 27. And the Mets have a ten-game turnaround on the Cubs. They're they're Amazing. they're ten games back. Uh, excuse me, an eighteen-game turnaround uh, in six weeks. They're ten game Mets were ten games back on August fourteenth. Six weeks later, they were eight games up and they won the division. They picked up three games a week over a six-week period. Yeah. Just that's fire. the most. That's uncanny. Yeah, I mean, and that requires not only you playing well, but it, it requires the other team not playing well. Yeah, there was the famous uh, black cat incident that happened in Shea in September when a black cat came out and the Cubs were playing the Mets, and the black cat stared down the Cubs bench. If you see the video of it, it looks like that. And uh boy, I tell you, um, it was. Uh, it, Joe DiMaggio said it. Uh, I think in some of the coverage I was watching in '69, he said, "You know, from that point in August, things that shouldn't have gone the the, uh, the Mets' way began to go the Mets' way." So all of those right. years of uh, of just being a tire fire Shot. were utility, uh, right? Yeah, were uh, were certainly upended in that year. Should point out that the month of July, which we'd slip skip slip by, was a was a pretty. Uh, It was pretty good one. A lot of stuff happened. 16th of uh, July, Apollo 11 lifted off from Cape Canaveral on the 18th and 19th, the night of the 18th and 19th of July, uh, Teddy Kennedy's chance to become president of the United States fell along the wayside due to the Chappaquiddick incident. And on the 20 and the 21st of July, man walked on the moon for the very, very first time. Uh, I should also point out that, um, the, uh, Mets clinched the division on September 24th versus St. Louis the night before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was released. The very first adult film. Uh, well, not adult film. Hello. Uh, the very first uh, not kids movie that I ever saw in a theater. So mm-hmm. there you go. Now, All right. the same time this is going on, Mark, out west where a young Mark Ferrera is cutting his teeth on. Musicals and uh, still yet to have discovered sports. He's the apple of his mother's eye. He can do no wrong. Right. Um, and uh, though he's not paying attention, he's in one of the tightest races in baseball history. With three weeks left in the 1969 season, five teams in the National League West were within two games of first place the Braves, the Giants, the Reds, the Dodgers. Um, and the Astros and, and the Astros, excuse me. And the Astros, um, I, 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 I tried to think of, and tried to do some research to think of any baseball season where that many teams were in contention. Remember they were in contention for one spot. It wasn't that they were in contention for the division or the wild card, right? It, it, Again, it just seems inconceivable that you could go through an entire season and end up with three weeks left with five teams within two games of each other, but they did.
1: Yeah, isn't that fun? I mean, literally, it's we're, we're talking 142, 143 games in, and there are five teams separated by two games. And I was uh, that was uh, the beginning of my fourth grade year, so I really needed to um, – I really should have been more on it than I was. But I do remember that tight race at the beginning of my fourth grade year between the, the Giants and the Braves. You know, the, as a matter of fact, here's the requisite San Francisco Giants talk from Mark Ferreira. Uh, that would have been their fifth consecutive season finishing second place, uh, the San Francisco Giants. They were a team loaded with talent, five Hall of Famers, and all they did was go to one World Series and lose it. And, yeah. uh, talk, about it. talk about a team that clammed what it mattered most for an entire decade. You know also though what it, what it really illustrates is for the people
0: who hate playoffs expanding and stuff in sports the, the the problem with baseball that we had through the 50s and 60s which where we started paying attention post war was that uh there were a lot of great players who never got any postseason play right just right. because you were so limited at you know at that point in time it was the winner of the National League and the winner of the, uh, of the American League so you had a lot of great players who never ever saw the World Series, and a lot of great teams that never saw the World Series. Um, So once again, Mark and I completely in favor of expanding the playoffs, and we think baseball uh, missed out on an opportunity maybe to change their playoffs up a little more uh, for this uh, 60-game season. Should it actually happen? Um, Atlanta ends up winning it. The Atlanta Braves end up winning it because they win 17 of their last 21. Uh, and uh, we can see uh, if you're if you're watching, you can see the slide with the great Henry Aaron. He was um, he was among the three stars of that team. Really, uh, non pitching stars. Mark were Aaron, Orlando Cepeda, and Rico Carty.
1: Um, Cepeda, by the way, uh, cast off from the Giants. One of the five Hall of Famers they had during that decade. That they traded away along with Gaylord Perry. So good job. Good job.
0: Yeah, and talk about hard luck. They traded away, uh, the Braves traded away Joe Torrey when they brought Orlando Cepeda in. And Joe Torrey for 1969 goes to the St. Louis Cardinals one year too late. Uh, So just continuing his futility for postseason play. Uh, should be pointed out that the Mets the, that karma caught up to him though it really did. The Mets made a run at Joe Torre and Frank Howard of the uh, of the Senators. They knew they needed a power hitter, and they made a run at Torre and couldn't get him. They made a run at of uh, Frank Howard uh, who was really the only thing selling tickets down in Washington, except for maybe uh, Ted Williams as their manager. But uh, they 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 made a run at Torre and couldn't get him. They wanted him the whole time, and boy, just think what that how differently that would have worked out if Joe Torre had been a member of that Mets team. I think. Going into the season, had they gotten Joe Torrey, I think the expectations for them would have been a lot greater because they didn't fill that power hitter role until uh, until June when they bring in Don Clendenon. He'll come up in the discussion uh, in in a little bit later. A little bit later, we're, we'll, we'll talk about Don Clendenon, uh, but he did come to the team uh, from nominally from Montreal. I'll explain that when we get there uh, to, to fill that power hitting role. But uh, so that's what we have: the Atlanta Braves win the West and the New York Mets win the east so the unlikely first national league championship series and i don't think anybody was betting on this one at the beginning of the year the mets were no nope. 101 to to uh to win the world series i don't think the you know people who knew the braves were a decent team but i don't think anybody thought the braves were uh were going to win the win the west but they did and that is your first national league championship series game one is in atlanta down in the New South in Atlanta. Now, the Mets owner at that time was Joan Whitney Payson from the, uh, the very famous Whitney family in New York, which were just sky of old New York money. And uh, Joan Whitney uh, actually went to Atlanta with, uh, with the team to watch the National League Championship Series. It was her second time to Atlanta. She had gone there um, in 1939, to see the premiere of a small film that she was an investor in, Gone with the Wind. Your thoughts, Mark? <laughs>
1: My thoughts on the fact that she saw it and she was an investor. My thoughts on the, that the, owner, that
0: the owner of the New York Mets who end up meeting the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta in the first national league championship sure. series, the, the owner had been there one time before because she had invested in gone with the wind. I just think it's, it's one fun. of those. It's one of those great stories. And yep. now, so Jeff can check off, Um, musical theater on the whiteboard I'll bring in one more reference that the hardcore sports fans will not care about but I will be excited by it and uh, if my good friend David Lowe is listening uh, he'll be excited by as well Joan Whitney Payson Mark yes she lived in a Manhattan mansion that was designed by architect Stanford White now I know you're saying John who is Stanford White well in addition to being one of the most successful architects in the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century. Uh, He's famous because he was part of the trial of the century. Uh, Sadly, the part that he was was of the deceased, because he uh, was murdered by the husband of the beautiful Evelyn Nesbitt. Um, And uh, Harry Thaw was his name. And uh, Harry Thaw was uh, a violent man who shot his wife's lover. And then I believe he, uh, he claimed that uh, he was temporarily insane when he did that. It was the trial of the century. And the reason I bring it up in the musical theater reference is, is because it led to a great song in the wonderful Broadway musical Ragtime, which is Crime of the Century. And I just happened to be in the uh, Garden Theater production
1: of Ragtime. Our Instagram Ooh. promo today of the Deep Dive had uh, the question... Will John Pelkey avoid a musical theater reference in the no deep chance. dive? And then no it cut chance. to me going, he- 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 yeah, I don't think so.
0: No chance. No chance. All right, Braves uh game one to a national league championship series between the uh, the Mets and the Braves. And I'm gonna I'm gonna power through this National League Championship series. I'll tell you, I'll bury the lead and let you know. We wouldn't be talking about the Mets if they didn't win this thing, and they did win it in three straight. First game was Tom Seaver against Phil Necro. Uh, the, the, the main thing to uh, to take into this was that as, gr- as great as Seaver was, he did not really have a great postseason that year. And he didn't have a, a, a terrific uh, game against the Braves in game one. In seven innings pitched, he gave up uh, eight hits and five runs. All of those runs were earned. Um, but uh, Phil Necro, the knuckleballer, uh, who started for um, started for the Braves, gave up nine hits over eight, nine runs, only four of those runs earned. Um, it should be pointed out that uh, one of the things that the Mets had going for them and the reason that they had success against um, uh, against Necro was that J.C. Martin was the catcher for the um, – for the Mets he was supposed to be their starting catcher but he had some injuries and Jerry Grody came in uh as a youngster and had a good season and took over most of the catching duties but Martin had played with the White Sox where he played with the great Hoyt Hoyt Wilhelm who was one of the great knuckleballers of all time and uh, J.C. Martin uh, basically acted as somewhat of a coach for the the hitters for um for the Mets and said this is how you you hit a knuckleball this is what you have to do don't fall for this and uh Martin uh Martin had two RBIs in that game in the eighth to break it open uh, in a five-run eighth that won it for them. So, you know, once again, uh, and we see this in baseball and football, most sports from time to time, when you have a player from another team that comes onto your team and you play them in in an important game, a lot of times they can pass along a lot of great information. And J.C. Martin, a big reason why. The uh, Mets win Game One. Game Two, and the
1: factor later on in the World Series. I'll tease yeah. that.
0: Yes, he yes he does become a factor in the World Series. Game number two. Let's push through this one pretty quickly. The Mets win at eleven to six. That's Jerry Kuzman, uh, and he goes up against Ron Reed. And I I, I don't know if I t- uh, you got pictures of Ron Reed, Mark, but I'm going to give not. you going to give you some interesting Ron Reed information. He was six six. Ron Reed, and he spent two seasons playing for the Detroit Pistons. Uh, in the NBA, coached by Dave DeBuscher and other two-sport athletes. And to this day, Ron Reed holds the Notre Dame Fighting Irish record for rebounds per game, 17.7 rebounds a game as wow. a 6-6 player. Just to show you, college basketball is a little yes. bit different back then. Indeed. But it's, it's Kuzman and Reed. Uh, Kuzman only goes four and two-thirds in the game, gives up six. All of those runs are earned. Ron Taylor, who we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later, comes in for uh, an inning and a third. And then the game is actually cleaned up by Tug McGraw. And Tug McGraw had been with the Mets, and prior to 1969, he only had one save. Um, he was a spot starter, and he just um, never really could break through. And we go back to Gil Hodges, who was just really masterful at handling his players, a master psychologist. He felt that McGraw's fiery um, – uh, Temper and just the way he carried himself lent him more to being a relief pitcher. So he changed him to a reliever, um, and he spent 19 years in the majors and was one of the one of the best relievers in baseball for a long long time. And he really owes that with 180 career saves. He really owes that to uh, uh, to Gil to Gil Hodges. Um, again, can't say enough about Gil Hodges and what he was able to do. All right. I have a Jerry Kuzman story for you because, again, we're going to push through these games pretty quickly before we get to get to the World Series. Um, talk about a different time. Um, when, Jerry, when Jerry Kuzman was uh, in minor league baseball, minor leaguers all had jobs in the offseason. Hell, major leaguers had jobs in the offseason. And a couple of years into his minor league um, into his minor league career, Jerry Kuzman uh, had been working at the post office and he was laid off after Christmas. He was post office help for Christmas and uh, was looking for a job. And he had a friend in Atlanta who told him, hey, a lot of jobs down here in Atlanta it was an incredibly quickly growing uh, metropolitan area at that point in time. Um, you should come down here and work. Jerry Kuzman goes down to Atlanta, finds out that Georgia Power is hiring a lot of people. So he goes and interviews for a job at Georgia Power and they hire him and they take him to show him his office in the office building. And he's like, what is this? And they said, well, this is your office. And he said, office, I don't want an office. What's the, what's the most difficult job you have? And they said, well, it's the assistant to alignment. He's like, that's the job I want. They said, well, it's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of exercise. And Kuzman's thinking, well, that's what I need. I'm, I'm trying to stay in shape for baseball. So he takes the job as a lineman works, uh, works for a couple of months in Atlanta and makes a little bit of money. And uh, thoroughly enjoys himself, apparently. Said he put bulked up, put on muscle. It was great. He was out uh, working out. It was a perfect job for him. So now it's time for him to head to Homestead, Florida for Mets training camp. So he piles himself in the car and a couple of buddies who have to head down there. And in Athens, Georgia, he gets T-boned by uh, some woman who totals his car. And now he's stuck in Athens, Georgia. So he reaches out to the the traveling secretary for the uh, uh, Joe McDonald for for the Mets and tells him his story. So Donald wires him 50 bucks. So, you know, get yourself a bus, whatever, whatever you need. And uh, Jerry Kuzman finally gets to Homestead, has a terrible spring. He's just not good. And at the end of spring, he was going to get cut. They're all sitting around the table, including McDonald, talking about, well, yeah, yeah Kuzman, we're, we're going to get rid of him. And then McDonald re- realized that he'd lent him $50 out of the team money. And he thought, I can't justify paying $50 to a guy who wasn't going to make the team. And he panics. F- $50, mind you. This is like 1965. And says, I, I, you know, I, can we keep him around just so it looks like? So they decide, okay. And they send him to single ball. He has A ball. He has a good season in single leg. Moves up two years later. is in the starting rotation for the New York Mets. So there's your, there's your Jerry Kuzman fun, story. Fun stuff. It's just remarkable how uh, things have to break your way. Yep, that's true. Um, All right, so finally, we're back at Schaefer uh, National League Championship Series Game 3. Gary Gentry is on the mound for the Mets. Gary Gentry is a rookie. Um, Had a terrific season. Um, Did not have a terrific game. In Game Three, he was pulled after two and two thirds, giving up five hits and two earned runs. Now, why this is interesting—at least it was interesting to me, Mark—was that he was pulled after uh, two and two thirds and only giving up two runs. Yeah. Um, but Gil Hodges, again, who who was a, who was a master, um, he was a gut manager. He didn't he he did not have things laid out. He didn't say, "Here's your pitch count, here's how many runs you have to give up." He just knew the Gentry was being hit hard. Um, so he pulled Gary Gentry uh, from the game and uh, to come on in relief <laughs> for uh, the seven innings of relief, a guy named Nolan Ryan. Now, Nolan Ryan um, in 1968, he was six and nine with 18 starts for uh, for the Mets. 3.09 ERA. Remember, this was the era of the pitcher. I should mention that the mound had been lowered in 1969 because the ERAs were so high in 1968.
1: But, so uh, the, low actually, you meant so low.
0: So Yes, so low. Excuse me. Um, so uh mound was lowered in the next season. Interestingly enough, I did some deep diving into that. It really didn't change the ERAs that much. Really? Quite honestly, going into 69. It wasn't as much as they thought it would be. Um, so it was probably maybe a combination of that and the fact that there was just a lot of really good pitching. And if you go and look at the 69 season and look at some of these teams, there's so much pitching throughout. Uh, Ryan only appeared in 25 games in 1969. He had military duty because, again, these guys had jobs, and many of them were National Guards members. Uh, he went 6-3 and three with one save. But he comes in um, uh, in this game. And he, he is able to save. This is the probably the most entertaining game of of the series. The Braves were up 2, two nothing in the fourth. Excuse me, the first. The Mets went up 3-2 to two in the fourth. The Braves go up 4-3 to three in the fifth. Um, and then the Mets scored three in the bottom of the fifth, one in the sixth to win it. Um, the last out of that game was caught by first baseman, platooning first baseman Ed Cranepool, who had played all – All of the games in um, in Atlanta. And uh, I bring up Ed Cranepool because he was a member of the 1962 Mets. Um, Interestingly, he was not on the opening day roster of the 1962 Mets in their expansion year. He was a high schooler who was a highly coveted prospect. And he watched the opening game in the polo grounds of New York Mets of the New York Mets life as a baseball team in the owner's box as they tried to convince him to sign with the Mets, which he did. And he ends up getting a call up plays through the summer of the minors and ends up getting a call up in, uh, in September. So boy, talk about long suffering, poor Ed Cranepool, who probably, you know, the greatest player in his high school, he had this ridiculous career. I think they run state championships. And then he's like, Hey, I'm signing with the Mets. And then he loses about a thousand games in six years. So but somehow was on that 69 team stuck so, around, stuck around story. ends up platooning with Don Clendenon, who comes in in in, uh, in, in uh, June and Cranepool played, played every game of that national league championship series. Don Clendenon did not play in a single game of that national league championship series. Again, this is in keeping with Gil Hodges and how he platooned his players. All right. So people in flushing and throughout New York are now in just euphoric a euphoric frame of mind the mets are in the world series that's the good news the bad news is sitting down in baltimore waiting for them are earl weavers baltimore orioles who won 109 games in 1969 much like the colts that we talked about with the jets they were considered one of the best teams in baseball yeah history uh they were on their way to three consecutive world series uh um three series uh, going to three consecutive world series winning one of them in 1970, they won the AL East, uh, by 19 games in 1969, swept the twins in the ALCS. They were had, by the way, won the world series as well in 1966, sweeping the Los Angeles Dodgers in four games. Um, they were good at everything. They were exceptionally good defensively. Um, they had a lot of power. Their big hitters, Boog Powell, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, and Paul Blair. Their numbers, Powell was 37 home runs, 121 RBI. Frank Robinson, 32 and 100 RBI. Brooks was 23 and 84 RBI. And Paul Blair, 26 and 76 RBI. Um, the thing about that is, Mark, they could have had half those numbers and probably still would have won 109 games because the pitching staff was so good. Mike Quayar, Dave McNally, and Jim Palmer. Um, Palmer would go on to have the best career of them all. Um, three Cy Youngs. Uh, it's a Hall of Famer. But in 1969, Mike Quayar was the ace of that staff. He'd gone 23 and 11 with a 2.38. ERA and won the 1969 Cy Young. Uh, 18 complete games for uh, for Cuellar, if you're scoring at home, and why would you be? Dave McNally went 20-7 and with a 3.22 ERA. Jim Palmer was 16-4 with a 2.34 ERA. Earl Weaver, as mentioned, was in his first full season as a manager for the Orioles uh, he had taken over uh eighty-two games into the nineteen sixty-eight season. He would go on to win four pennants, one World Series, and win fourteen hundred and eighty games as a uh as manager. Uh the Birds outscored their opponents in sixty-nine by two hundred and sixty-two runs. They won the most games in the American League since the nineteen fifty-four season cleveland
1: indians i mean there's no way they should have lost that series
0: no and in fact in the very first uh if you, if you go back and you watch the uh, the highlight film or you watch the film the games kurt gowdy uh, is uh one of the announcers and one of my all-time favorites and kurt gowdy even says like the opening of game one on paper wow. it just says baltimore, baltimore baltimore but he points it out nobody played their season on paper and they're not going to play this series on paper here's an interesting part of trivia bit of trivia, the Orioles' Orioles assistant GM, one of the guys who was responsible for putting together that great team, was Frank Cashin, who would go on to be the general manager and the architect of the 1986 World Series-winning New York Mets. It's not the only bleed-over between the Mets and the Baltimore Orioles. The manager of that 86 Mets team was Davey Johnson, who was the starting second baseman for the 69 Baltimore Orioles. Eh, Tough series coming up for my birds. Before we move into the World Series, Mark, I want to give you an opportunity. Do you have any questions, anything that's unclear, something I haven't covered?
1: No, you've covered everything. You've covered everything. I've covered Uh, too much, uh, haven't I? You've done a beautiful job covering all kinds of bases, leading us now to this moment, the the pinnacle, the World Series, to see how, how this amazing, miraculous Mets team that somehow came back from 10 games down in the middle of August. They had an 18-game swing in six weeks. An 18-game yeah, swing. Unbelievable. That's already a miracle. Yeah. Now they, they they somehow beat the Atlanta Braves three straight, for crying out loud, when their pitching doesn't show up at all. Right. And, you know, their bats come alive. And now they're facing maybe the one of the two or three best teams in the history of the American League, the Baltimore Orioles, who, to your point, are loaded at every position and have – stellar pitching, I, I don't see how the Mets can, can, can yet accomplish yet another miracle. It's impossible, no. John. It's impossible.
0: It really does seem like it's impossible. And um, game one in Baltimore, eh, especially well, after it, that, look well, at that game one in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, Mike Quayar has, has a stellar game. Uh, he goes, it's a complete game, six hit one run game, um, which is kind of line. The guy like Quayar who was the master of the screwball, by the way. So it's really fun to watch, the uh, watch those series games with because he just tied guys up, you know. Uh, a, a Tom Seaver was was a power pitcher, and he, that's who he he pitched against. And Seaver only went five, gave up six with four runs in the game. Um, but Cuellar with the screwball just kept batters off balance the whole
1: time. And and um, so they're thinking we've got this. I mean, they've yeah. won 109 games. They're just they rolled roll through Minnesota. Now they've, now they got one, you know, game one, they're going to sweep these, they're going to sweep these fraud. Well, not
0: more. only that,
1: Cuellar are stellar, but Don Buford leads off the game for Baltimore with a
0: home run. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they only need Plenty one more run. Romans. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, however, I'm glad you said that, Mark. That's a great segue, because despite the fact that the Mets lose game one in Baltimore, they're not... Um, They're really not that concerned, including Tom Seaver, who again only went five, gave up six, four earned runs. Not a horrible, horrible day, but just not, he's not yet Tom Seaver like in any of these postseason games. Right. I mentioned Boog Powell, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, and Paul Blair. Um, Despite the fact that Baltimore wins the game four to one, they go a combined 0 for 15. Right. And that's a trend that's going to continue. The thing that the Mets did from minute one was they they really took the bats, the big bats of the Orioles, away from They took all of the bats. We're going to have statistical analysis at the end of this thing. It's pretty
1: remarkable, really. Um, but those yeah, big bats. They're going to make Merv Retman beat them. Yeah. Or Mark Belanger, I forget. Who was the...
0: Well, Merv Retman was there, too, but Belanger was the starting shortstop. And right, he who was, hit, you know,
1: usually hit about 2
0: Mendoza line guy. Great glove guy, but a Mendoza line guy who uh, would go on. He'd still be the Orioles 10 years later in 79. He's still the shortstop for the Orioles when they lose to the Pittsburgh Pirates in, uh, in, a, in a World Series that we will never do a deep dive for. Right. Um, all right. So it's game two. Um, Mets down one to nothing. It's Kuzman versus Dave McNally. And Dave, poor Dave McNally is such a hard luck guy throughout this series because he pitches a complete game, six-hit, two-earned run game. Wow. Uh, And he loses two to one because Jerry Kuzman was as advertised. He goes eight and two, three, two hits, one earned run um, in the game. Um, He no hit the Orioles through six innings in that game. Uh, It's interesting because in reading and uh, the great book by uh, Wayne Coffey, they said that it couldn't be done. Uh, I I read that uh, prior to doing this and um, almost to a man, the Mets talked about how much they love Tom Seaver. But if there was one game to win with one game on the line, they said they'd take Kuzma. Wow. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he certainly came up big in game two. And it really is the pivotal game. Because you, you know, Mark, anytime you're in a situation like this with a team on the road, an underdog, if you can get a split at the other guy's house. seriously. And, and it was a 2-3-2 two, series at that point. So you get the split, you're going back to Shea for three games. And they got that split. We, uh, Don Clendenon had a home run in the fourth. Um, he gave the Mets their first lead in the series. And, uh, again, was their big acquisition in June. Uh, they brought him in from Montreal. He was struggling somewhat in Montreal. Um, But uh, he didn't play at all in the National League Championship Series, and he got his first of three home runs in the five-game series, which would lead him to become the MVP of the 1969 World Series. There it is. Um, in, in, In keeping with our trend, Boog Powell, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, and Paul Blair had a little better day. They went two for 14 in that game. Uh, we bring up Don Clendenon because he was the MVP of that series, and uh, he broke in, in uh, Pitt, with Pittsburgh in 1961. Uh, he only played nine games in 62. He finished second for Rookie of the Year. Um, he was with the he was with the Expos in 69. They picked him up in the expansion drafts. They tried to trade him to the Astros. He had played for the Astros manager in Pittsburgh. He said that the guy was a racist and he wouldn't play for him. So he was going to uh, he was going to retire. Um, he was actually traded uh, to the Astros for Rusty Staub, speaking of the Mets. So uh, names that will come up, I'm sure, in deep dives later on. Um, anyway, he does finally end up uh, with, with the Mets. It didn't look like much of a trade at the time. He was hitting 240 with 14 RBI when he got there on uh, on June 15th. It should be pointed out, and again, we go back to Gil Hodges, uh, one of the reasons that Clendenin decided not to retire is, um, And and go and play with the Mets is because he was uh, he he really really had a great relationship with Gil Hodges. He'd never played for Hodges, but um, when Hodges was managing the Senators and he was with the Pirates, Clendenham was trying to learn first base um, to pick up the finer points of playing first base. And his friend Jackie Robinson said, "Well, you're going to be you know you're playing the Senators. Talk to talk to Gil." Because Gil, you know, Gil's a great defensive player, and he'll help you. And Clendenon said that uh, Gil Hodges really took time with him over some uh, exhibition games to really help him out for that. So uh, that's really one of the main reasons that he signed with the Mets as opposed to retiring, because he had a job, he had like a really good corporate job set up for himself somewhere, and was was ready to uh, uh, was ready to walk away from uh, from baseball. So that's Don Clendenin. They'll. They're going to be really happy that he didn't walk away from baseball because, again, it's a big reason why they won. Though I would argue, and we'll talk about it at the end, I don't know that I would have voted him MVP. Um, but to quote uh, Tom Glavin and, uh, uh, and, and other Atlanta Braves pitchers in, in in a great commercial, Greg Maddox and John Smoltz, chicks dig the long ball. And uh, Clendennon went deep three times, which was a record for a five-game uh, a five game. World Series. I also want to point out that in that game, Ron Taylor got the save. Now, Ron Taylor is a guy that probably, Mark, you haven't heard of. And I hadn't heard about Ron Taylor. But uh, in one of those those, uh, deep dives that I did uh, preparing for this show, I found out this about Ron Taylor, and I think it's just remarkable. Taylor's mom uh, emigrated uh, with her siblings from Wales, from Cardiff in Wales, Um, after their parents had died, the early part of the 20th century. uh, They wanted to go to Australia. She had bought tickets for all of them to go to Australia. They show up at the docks, and uh, the ship for Australia has already left. And uh, she asks, (laughs) when is there another one? And there wasn't anything scheduled for any period of time. So she just said, well, where is that boat going? And they said, it's going to Canada. And she was able to talk her way on because, you know, she, she had actually purchased tickets through the same line and uh, basically they ended up in Canada and that's when she met Ron's dad and, He's born in Canada and otherwise would not have been a uh, a major league baseball player. Taylor was also a really, really smart guy. And in fact, uh, at one point, he found himself at Toots Shores, the famous watering hole in New York. Um, and Toots is actually interviewed during the World Series. If you watch those highlight films, it's hysterical. It's very it's old school meets new school in 1969. Sure. It, it is sure. just the best. Uh, but one night at Toots Shores, Ron Taylor found himself in a long conversation with Ernest Hemingway for God's sake, because he was a really bright guy. Here's the part about Taylor that I love the most. After 1969, after the Mets won the World Series, Taylor went to uh, Vietnam on a USO tour, and he was so taken by what he saw, the carnage, and these young men who had been injured, horribly injured, that he thought, geez, I really, really want to do something. So he decided to go to medical school, and eight years later he was the Toronto Blue Jays
1: team physician. How about that? How about that, man? That is a major life. That is a major career, major life. Unbelievable. Kind of and, using
0: uh, up, kind of using up a lot there, Ron Taylor. Conversation with Hemingway, reading a hundred books a year, major league baseball player, world series champion. And then, oh, by the way, yeah. well, career's that, over. What am I going to do? I'm going to go be a doctor. So just, you know, if you start following these personalities down uh, the well, Mark, you know, as well as I do, it can go on I know forever. It's awesome. And this could go on forever. Yes, indeed. Uh, but, it's, it. but it's not going to go on forever. We're going to move on to game three. We now go back to Shea Stadium for three games if needed. Two, they won't all be needed, uh, sadly. Um, well, they will all be needed, obviously. We're not going to go back to Baltimore, is what I meant to say. Um, this one uh, is on October 14th, 1969. It is on the eve of the largest anti-war protests in the history of the country, because on the 15th of October 1969, which also happened to be Jim Palmer's 24th birthday, uh, who would start this game on the eve of his 24th birthday, um, these uh, Vietnam protests took, uh, took place all over the country. And there was actually some um, controversy in New York, because uh, Tom Seaver, who had come out at that point and said that he w- he would like the war to end, he wanted the war to end. Uh, Seaver's face appeared on um, some uh, things that were being passed out outside the stadium, some anti-war stuff that had been passed out outside the stadium, and there was a lot of consternation. It did did uh, did Seaver have anything to do with this? And it turned out that he didn't. And also, Mark, because we will we will never ever miss an opportunity to take a swipe at Bowie Kuhn, who both you and I believe was a bad guy um the uh the mayor Lindsay wanted to fly flags at half mast in uh in shea stadium for game four of the series the next game after the moratorium as you know basically they were doing that in a lot of places uh for the folks who had died in vietnam and uh the mayor of new york wanted to do that at shea and uh, major league baseball commissioner said that that was not going to happen and so the flags full uh flew at full staff in in game four. Let's get back to game three because it was uh this one wasn't really even that competitive. It was a five nothing shutout of the Orioles. Um Jim Palmer, six innings pitch, five hits, four earned runs um for uh Baltimore. The interesting thing about this when I was when I was reading about uh about Palmer was that uh, Palmer had hurt his? I didn't know this. He'd hurt his rotator cuff in '68, and, and Palmer had injuries throughout his career. It was one of the one of the negatives for him. He was left unprotected in the uh, in the expansion draft. Wow, wow! And the Seattle Pilots and the Kansas City Royals both passed on Jim
1: Palmer. Man, man, you know, well, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, he, you know, if, if the Royals would have picked him that would have been something because they're the only one of those four expansion teams that's ever won a world series. San Diego has been there and Milwaukee has been there, but haven't won. And then, um,
0: and what would Palmer's arm have done with them in the seventies when they could never get past the Yankees? Yeah.
1: If they had the Jim Palmer's arm. No, I know that Kansas city would be, would have been a big one, but of course he had a great career with, uh, with Baltimore. I mean, he's, he's part of that 66 world series He's on that team. And so he wins a World Series, wins a World Series the following year after this against the Reds, and then he wins in 83. So he won in three consecutive decades with the Baltimore Orioles and one of the most, you know, storied careers in Major League Baseball, Jim Palmer. And, and a lot kind of it of, has to do with staying with the same team, I think. You know what and,
0: I mean? And it's a little Drew Brees-like in and of the fact that teams passed on him because of of, of an injury. Right. And it turns out that really once he and, – and basically uh, what Palmer said was that he had a friend who was a doctor – who was able to get him um, the the most advanced anti inflammatories at that time, and he was able to rehab his arm more quickly. But uh, would have been a, would have been a different different uh, baseball landscape if Jim Palmer ended up, particularly a Seattle pilot.
1: Right, of course, there's no um, way. And I should correct what I said about Kansas City being the only one of those four to have won a World Series. I guess you could make the argument that the Montreal Expos won a World Series last year. <laughs> yes, yes, as the Washington. Uh, as Washington Nationals, absolutely. Um, anyway, Palmer's
0: uh, Palmer went up against the, the the rookie Gary Gentry that we mentioned before. Uh, right. Gentry has a much better outing in this game: six and two third, three hits, no earned runs. Uh, Nolan Ryan comes on in relief and picks up the save. But this game really belonged to, to Tommy Agee. Um, first of all, Agee leads off. Uh, the uh, the game with a home run, second lead off home run uh, in in the series. Uh, Don Buford having one in the first for Baltimore, um, but really where AG got things done, um, drove in some runs. But he made two of the best catches in World Series history, and robbed. Well, it took five runs away from the Orioles, really. In the fourth, Elrod Hendricks, with two on, gets robbed by a catch in left center. Um, and in the seventh, he robs Paul Blair in right center. The bases were loaded at that point in time. Um, and again, here this is the the ongoing refrain for the Baltimore Orioles and why the Mets were able to, uh, to win this series is that they – never, ever allowed the Orioles to break out. They didn't have a breakout right. inning in this entire series. A couple no. of home runs here and there, maybe a manufactured run. But uh, they just could not get it done. And once again, in game three, their big four, Powell, the Robinsons, and Blair, go three for 15 in that game. Moses,
1: I mean, they are just shut down. No, they just, they they could get
0: nothing, they could get nothing done. Now, A.G., of course, a member of that outfield for the uh, the New York Mets that included Cleon Jones and Ron Swoboda. Tommy A.G. and Cleon Jones, actually childhood friends, they grew up together. And ended up in the same outfield for the Mets. And both of them are big reasons why they won that series. But uh, game three belonged to Tommy Agee. It's a 5 nothing shutout in uh, in New York. And uh, inexplicably, Mark, you said at the beginning, how can they win? Yeah. It's not possible. They're up two games to one. I know. And at this point, they're looking like the better team. Pivotal game. They are. They are. The pivotal game is game four. Seaver- Versus Cuellar, and uh, a two to one ten inning met victory.
1: Yeah, and think about that. If if you talk about a game of inches in every sport, it's a game of inches. And if one thing breaks one way or the other, it's it's a whole different series. This is game four, John. This series is tied. Yeah. If the Orioles win this, this series, it's a brand new series. 2-2 is a lot different than 3-1, oh, yeah. especially when you have another game at home. At home. And uh, and it's so close. It's 2-1, to one and we find out how they actually win, but it's amazing what the Mets do to keep it that close. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Uh,
0: Tom Seaver for that game, by the way, he goes, uh, you know, 10. He goes the full 10 innings, six hits, gives up one earned run. There is not a manager in baseball today who would allow right. a starting pitcher. And remember, this is game four. So in theory, if this goes seven, Seaver's back to pitch again. Um, no way they ever let him go ten.
1: But that's it's just a, so great. What a it's what a a great different era. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a period piece. You know, it's a time capsule. It's beautiful. I love that. And Tom Seaver, to your point, not a not only not a great postseason. But pretty mediocre postseason thus far. He's given up, you know, four or five yep. runs a game in yep. the in yeah. the NLCS and, and the first game of the World Series.
0: Yep. Yeah. But again, like all the Mets pitch, staying away from the big inning. You oh, know, yeah. he, he given up four runs over, you know, three different innings. They're just they never the Orioles just never could put together that big inning. Um and in this game, their big four go three for fifteen. Um, it's just they they can't get it done. He's up against Mike Quayar, who has a has a hard luck day. Seven innings pitched, he gave up seven hits, but only one earned run. Quayar did his job. Uh, Don Clendenon hits his second in the series. He hits it off of Quayar in the second. Um, it. Uh, I, I just I to put yourself in the the mindset of these Quayar of and McNally, and that's the thing going through this that I looked at is that Quayar and McNally did everything they could to win the series, but they were sold out. By um, by the Mets bats, really more than anything. Uh, excuse me, by the uh, by the Orioles bats, yeah. they just couldn't get anything done. Also, a couple of errors uh, hurt the Orioles later. In fact, there's a, a one of the most uh, infrequent occurrences in baseball occur in Game Five. We'll talk about it in a second, but uh, uh, something that I wanted to point out in Game Four and why it's notable is that Earl Weaver was thrown out in the third uh, by. Um, by a home plate umpire for arguing a call. He became the first manager thrown out of a World Series game since 1935. And that was, I'm sure you know, Mark, that was Charlie Grimm of the Cubs. Um, 94 times in his career, Earl Weaver was thrown out of games. Uh, One of the most entertaining managers of all time. Um, Third all time, Mark Ferreira. I'll give you number two. It's John McGraw. I was going to guess McGraw for sure. John McGraw was number two. Who is the manager in baseball? I, I will say this, not a contemporary I, of John McGraw. I, would
1: say,
0: <laughs> I think it's Bobby Cox. It is indeed Bobby Cox. It is indeed. It was well over 100. Um, <laughs> the uh, last point about Earl Weaver is he was, he was ejected from both ends of a double header three times in his career. Wow.
2: Love the, that. The most, you know, Love the most that.
0: interesting thing in that is that in 18 years as a manager, he played in three double headers. Because I don't think a man you could get in there'd be three double headers in 18 years in Major League Baseball anymore. But three times he was thrown out in both anymore. games, both games of a double header. Um, this one came down to. Uh, a Ron Swoboda catch in the, in the top of the ninth. Tommy Agee's catches were good. Cleon Jones made a few good catches. But Ron Swoboda, who was not known as a great fielder, he was known more as, 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 a, as a, an offensive player. But uh, with two on, he robbed Brooke, R- Brooks Robinson which with a catch which, to this day, uh, could be as good as any you'd see in a World Series.
1: This picture, uh, for those uh, listening, you don't have to worry about this, but this picture is, is kind of a blurry shot. But this was, this was something I remember a lot. This particular catch, for whatever reason, in 1969, I remember that. And it turns out, John, that there was a man on third base that still scored, you know, uh, on the sacrifice fly, if you will, yep. to tie the ball game up, which is why it went into extra innings. But uh, – But, yeah, that would have been a massive inning. For instance, to your point, they never broke out. They never had a big inning. And a lot of that is because the Mets' pitching was stellar. But a lot of that, too, is that they just stepped up. They played their best. It's what I love. This is what I love. They played their best when it mattered most. And the Orioles, per their history under Earl Weaver, unfortunately, did not.
0: No, they didn't. And Earl Weaver, again, uh, we, we mentioned um, uh, Leo Rocha earlier. Earl Weaver went with the same guys quite a bit and shortened his starting rotation. Well, certainly, with that starting rotation, those are the guys you're going to go with. Uh, shortened up his bullpen, and I think it tired the Orioles a little bit. Jim Palmer also didn't pitch particularly well, was dealing with a lower, uh, lower body injury during this. Uh, it, you know, and to your point, Mark, um, the I know we're not even to game five yet, but it really does. It's not going to matter in the end. Boog Powell led the Orioles and he had a 263 average. I saw that. Five hits, all non-scoring singles. And that was the, that was the highest average of the entire team. 263, yeah. And again, their power hitting first baseman, five hits, all of them non-scoring singles. Uh, the other side of that is in every Mets win, the first baseman, be it Clendenin or Cranepool, hit a home run. So it's the bottom bottom lines. Mets Mets stepped up when they had to. Uh, There is controversy in this game um, because in the bottom of the ninth, uh, JC Martin, the catcher that we mentioned uh, Hoyt Wilhelm's old catcher and the guy that helped them get past Phil Necro down in uh, Atlanta. He bunts with two on um, in, uh, in the ninth, the bottom of the ninth, he bunts with two on Pete Reichert, who is the pitcher, the relief pitcher, who's on the mound for Baltimore, picks up the ball, tries to throw uh, Martin out at first, and he hits Martin in the wrist with the ball. Now, and th- this is th- this is what wins the game, though, right? Uh, this uh, this this is what wins the game. Um, okay. Yeah, this is what wins the game. Um, at the bottom of the 10th, excuse me. Um, he hits Martin in the wrist with the ball. Now, right. If you look at the film, Martin is slightly out of the base path, and at the time, it appeared to be interference. And in fact, when they I'm watching the the coverage of the game, Mickey Mantle, uh, Sandy Koufax, both said they thought that it could be ruled interference. It wasn't uh, ruled interference, um, and to your point, that was that was the, uh, the that was the run winning came run in as a result. It
1: was the winning run of the game. Now, if you look at that, John, if you look at that, and I, I looked at that as well, I think it's the pitcher. The pitcher and the catcher are having a hard time picking up the ball. Yes. Because it's a really, really good bunt. And they get, they get kind of tangled up a little bit in that. I mean, very, but it's, it's probably a, a second delay. But that second would have allowed the catcher to make a better throw. And, right. And, he was in a better position and to avoid the runner. So I, I don't necessarily buy, while, while Martin may have, may have been a little bit out of the base paths or whatever it is, t- to me the real reason that play didn't work is because they didn't field the bunt cleanly, Yeah, frankly.
0: You're right, they did. And again, that was an Oriole team that I believe had, uh, had committed the fewest number of errors in the American League in 1969. Uh, and though this wasn't uh, scored an error, they they, got um, tight. they, they, they really got- did. They, they really did get tight, and so now the Mets are up 3-1, to one and the miracle is uh, all but assured, or is it? Yes. Um, it is all assured. We can just move on. So we just go? Just, folks, they win yeah, it fine. all. Everything's There's good. the deep dive. We're, we're at an hour and 22 minutes at this point. All right, game five um, can be the deciding game. The hard luck, uh, Dave McNally is on the line. By the way, McNally figured in my deep dive on the A's because I talked about how free agency hurt them and Dave McNally along with Andy Messersmith were the two yep. guys who who essentially invented free agency along with Marvin Miller uh, while McNally was with the Montreal Expos at that point in time. Um the expansion team uh from 69. All right, so Dave McNally goes up against Jerry Kuzman once again.
1: They um, were the Elvis. They were the Elvis of free agency. But Kurt Flood was the Robert Johnson of free agency. Okay, yeah, fair. That's, that's well put. Well put.
0: It kind of killed his career. Oh yeah, and, it, uh, it, it completely did. It completely did. Absolutely. And both, both McNally and Kuzman ended up uh, horribly overweight, living in Las Vegas. That's not true. I just that. <laughs> Did not happen to either of them that I know of. Right. Um, All right. So once again, uh, Dave McNally shut out the Mets through five. He hit a two-run home run in the third. (laughs) And... Gave up uh, five hits, three earned, over seven innings pitched, and still can't get the win because Kuzman goes nine, five hits, three earned runs. There are a couple of questionable calls in this game. We'll get to them. But once again, having thrown out the numbers, and this is a 5-3 Mets win in Game 5, Boog Powell, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Paul Blair go two for 15 in the deciding game of the world series um, here are the two questionable calls and uh, they're they're um, the first one is um, Jerry Kuzman hits Frank Robinson in the top of the six. Did you watch the video of this Mark? I did not. Cause the ball actually careens off of Robinson's bat and the home plate umpire said uh, and Ryan Robbie kept saying he'd been hit. And the home umpire was like, no, it hit the bat. Well, if you look at it in slow motion, it really did hit Robinson in the side and then bounced off the bat. But they did not get the benefit of the call. So once again, the Orioles did not step up when they had to, and they were also a little bit
1: unlucky at times in this game. That, that follows a lot of times in sports. Yeah. It really does. Bad luck follows, you know, clamming moments. If, if, you know if you, if you get up and you – I don't know how many times – if you've got a lead in the top of the ninth and you're on the road, you've got a lead, and let's say it's a one-run lead, and you have like runners on second and third with nobody out in the top of the ninth, and you fail to score to 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 build a cushion so many times in the bottom of the ninth, you lose because, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of it's bad bad bounces as well. The bad luck follows clamming play <laughs> well, you that's, know, Tom, just, that's just an algorithm in major league baseball sorry
0: and it's also just you know uh everybody gets their chance in baseball it's that whole thing as well so that if you don't you know if you don't capitalize and the orioles didn't on situations where you can break the game wide open or put a couple of extra right. runs up um it, Thomas Boswell talks about uh, the Washington, former Washington post sports writer talks about talking to Earl Weaver about that in a game years later where the Orioles were up big in a game and it might've been a postseason game. I don't remember, but, um, and uh, they ended up, you know, they were up big in the eighth or ninth and they other team ended up coming back and, and, and beating them. And, and, and he said Earl Weaver was generally, for all of his emotions, Earl Weaver was usually the same after a win or a loss. He was that sort of guy. And he was like, oh, my God, well, Earl, didn't you think you were going to win? Didn't you, weren't you sure you were going to win? He goes, that's the thing about this game, son. He goes, can't run a few dive plays into the line to run out the clock at the end of the game. Everybody gets a chance. And uh, the Mets took their chances, to your point. Um, the bigger uh, questionable call in that game, and this is something I think even people who – don't know much about the 69 Mets have heard about the shoe polish game in, uh, in the bottom of the sixth, it appeared as though Dave McNally hit Cleon Jones in the foot. Um, it was clear that the umpire was unsure and he was not going to call the walk. Um, Gil Hodges came out with the ball, which had gone into, uh, the Mets dugout and showed the home plate umpire that, uh, there was shoe polish on the ball. And so he gave Cleon Jones uh, first base. In 1986, Ron Swoboda said what actually happened was the ball went careening into the dugout. And that now I don't know, because there's another story from Jerry Kuzman that's coming up about this. But he said that what happened was that Hodges looked down and he saw a ball with a black scuff mark on it and took that ball out there and that it might most likely was a different ball. In 2009, uh, Kuzman said that Hodges instructed him to rub his shoe with the ball to put that black streak on. Anyway, we will never know, but Cleon Jones was given first base. I- I'm surprised Earl Weaver wasn't thrown out for this.
1: First of all, shoe polish in a major league baseball game. I don't understand who's polishing their shoes in the middle. Well, those of the were, game.
0: you know, those, those, they were those. Uh, you know, the all everybody wore the black cleats except Joe Namath, obviously uh, in football. But it, so those were, you know, you'd polish up your cleats. You know, it's the World Series. You want to look good, Mark. Don't you have any aesthetic?
1: I don't. I don't. You, I mean, you you're the don't. one always accusing me of, of trying to build an aesthetic for this particular show now w- yeah. w- once once we have a YouTube uh, situation happening. But, uh, no, I mean, it, uh, really? Real? I mean, and, and this is – now we're talking in the g- middle of the game. So I mean, yeah. And Jerry Kuzman is pitching. So that means Jerry Kuzman is polishing his shoe, shoes whilst he's playing the game.
0: Well, no, I don't think you polish your shoes before the game. The shoe polish could still come off. Have you ever polished your sh- – Mark, have you ever polished your shoes in your life? I have, and it right. Well, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't last two hours. Yeah, he can. You get shoe polish off something if you polish up the
1: shoes. That's that's weak. Okay. That's weak. <laughs>
0: <laughs> who are those guys who do the science things on TV? We need to get them to you know get to polish a couple of shoes, and, an hour later, anyway. Whatever. Yeah, really. It did turn up. It, it did turn out to be a, a big deal. Um, in, in any case, Clendenon hits his third home run, uh, makes the game three to two we move forward to the seventh and here's another one of those uh no matter how many big stars you have on on whatever the team is there's almost always one guy who's the most unexpected guy to step up sure sure and um so we love about the world series um and and in this one it's al weiss al weiss uh was a light hitting infielder Uh, for the, uh, for the Mets and he hit a home run in the seventh. It was his seventh career home run. Um, the only home run he ever hit at Shea. And in fact, it's the only home run. And he had a 10 year career. The only home run he ever hit as a player in his home park. The other six runs of his career were all on the road. Wow. (laughs) Wow. He ties up game five, the deciding game. And oh, Man. by the way, Al Weiss, who I haven't mentioned until now. Remember, I said Boog Powell hit 263? Uh
1: thir-
0: huh. Boog Powell, perennial all star power hitter. Sure. At 263. Light hitting Al Weiss, who uh, couldn't hit it out at home. Right. He let all batters in the series hit 455. It's phenomenal. In the series. And once again, this is Gil Hodges using a lot of different players. Um, the Mets took the lay, lead in the eighth on one of the rarest of all plays, a play in which there were two errors on the same play. Wow. Scored a double error. Uh, Jerry Grody hit a grounder to Boog Powell, who was the first baseman and Powell booted the ball and bounced it around and played around with it for a few minutes. And then he threw it to Eddie Watt, the pitcher who was covering first and Watt dropped the ball. You know, as an, I mean, it was just falling. You apart know, from them at the that the point. Orioles fan. As I put on my Orioles hat, this is a very disturbing story, and I don't know why I chose to do this as a deep dive, because how do you <laughs> shoe polish on a uh, on two one of the greatest catches of all time by a guy who's a bad outfielder? Shoe polish right. extends right. an inning. Um, Al Weiss, it's his only home home run in his 10-year career. Yeah. And uh, and now you have two errors by, again, the team that had the fewest number of errors or at least the fewest percentage of errors in um, balls hit uh, into the infield in the American League that year.
1: I and, I and I don't know if I can quote some stats. You may have them already. Yeah. But to your point, and this is the story you're telling this, this entire time. You know, Paul Blair, two for 20. Brooks Robinson, one for 19. And, and stop me if you're going to, you know, <laughs> Bruce Dernett talk about these. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, 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 stop me if you already have these stats. No, no, no,
0: go. no, you can, you can, I have them, but go ahead and go through them. I, I'd, I'd rather I mean, somebody else say
1: it. Three for 16 for Frank Robinson, one for 19 for Brooks Robinson, two for 20 for Paul Blair. And to your point, the fourth member of the big four, Boog Powell, five singles that didn't do anything. Didn't drive in a run. For 19. So it is remarkable how bad everyone was. You know, Don Buford, two for 20. This is another great player uh, back in the day. You know, I mean, Mark Belanger, for crying out loud, was three for 15 had a good you know, series he, for him. Yeah, he he had better than Frank Robinson or Brooks Robinson or or Paul Blair or Don Buford. It it is it, they they hit 146 yeah over that series. 146 it doesn't matter how many shoe polish or good catches or bad errors you make. If you hit 146, there's no way you're going to win unless you're the early 60s Dodgers and you've got, you know, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, right. you know, throwing two hitters every game.
0: Yeah. And they lost four in a row. Games two through five, they hit 134. They went 17 for uh, 127 in those games that they lost. Um, they had four extra base hits in the whole series. My Did the Orioles. Um, so it's almost over. The final out in the, the glove of Cleon Jones is hit by the aforementioned Davy Johnson, who will show up back in uh, Shea Stadium um, in 17 years or so and win a, in, win a World Series. Um yeah. But uh it, it all comes to an end. Again, just to go through a couple of those fun facts that I brought up before. Um in every win that the Mets had, their first baseman hit uh hit a home run, three by uh Don Clendenon. Ed Cranepool hits one in the third, uh and uh the big hitting Boog Pal of the Orioles has five singles throughout the entire series. And Mets were out. Uh, the Mets outscored the O's 15-9. to nine. So it really was, if you look at the scores of, of the game, these were really generally outside of the shutout game, Mark, the 5 nothing game. They were really close games. Um, and it was just, you know, if the Orioles had had maybe, if two plays had turned different for the Orioles throughout that series, A.G. had missed one of those catches of the two that he made. If Swoboda misses that catch... Yeah. Um, if, if if a couple of those blown one of those blown calls doesn't go right, I mean, two to three plays could have changed the entire complexion of that series because I think the last thing the Mets wanted was to go back to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. I think right. that's that's what they did because now Earl Weaver can just use all of his pitchers. I mean he can start the game with Cuellar and have McNally come on in relief. Um, so the Mets win the 1969 World Series. They were 101, 100 to one. I think the only team that uh, that. that the only teams that were more than 101 were 3 of the 4 expansion teams. Um it uh interestingly enough the Mets who had been a horrible under 500 team all the way up into 1969 in 70 They were eighty three and seventy nine. They were eighty three and seventy nine, and seventy one. In seventy two, they were eighty three and seventy three, and in seventy three, they were eighty two and seventy nine. But that eighty that seventy three team did win the National League pennant. Unfortunately, they didn't win it with Gil Hodges, who had passed away in April of nineteen. 72 two days short of his 48th birthday yogi barrow who was the first base coach for that mets team that uh that won in 69 would take over that team and it's really a shame because gil hodges is, is i think the one person if you removed from the uh from the equation would have completely changed i think any player any one player you might have been able to pull maybe not kuzman given the way that he pitched, but if he, but Gil Hodges is really the reason that that team won and uh, beloved uh, as well as he should be Gil Hodges. So there you are, the 1969 Mets, the Orioles went back back, uh, the next year and beat the Cincinnati and lost to Pittsburgh in 1971 and became the winningest team in the American league in the 1970s. But uh, that one magical summer, that had, uh, I, I even forgot, you know, as I went through my notes, I even forgot to mention that, uh, Oh, by the way, uh, also shoehorned in there, uh, the Woodstock music and arts festival in, in, in July of 69 or early Ar- August of 69, I think, um, which somehow I'd left out of my five hours of writing down notes yesterday to try to get this together. Uh, it, it's just one of those inexplicable summers that came out of nowhere. Um, and, outside of really the Orioles, all four teams that were in the playoffs, we skipped over the Minnesota Twins, which was a a great baseball team, Um, but they were not expected necessarily to win the West. Atlanta wasn't expected to win the National League West. The Orioles were the only team um, by the end of that season that was where everyone expected them to be. And by the last day of the season, after game five, they were not where everyone
1: expected them to be. It's a a great story. Put my Orioles hat back on, though, because I feel bad. Yeah. No, it's a remarkable story. And I'll tell you, they, you know, to your point that they won more games than any other team in the in the 70s, that they won a bunch of divisions in the 70s as yeah. well and, and couldn't get past, you know, I think in 73 uh, they couldn't get past the A's. Right. And I, and I believe that might have happened again in 74. Um, in uh, 75, they don't win the division. It's the Red Sox. But, you know, then they get there in 79 again. and They're up three to one uh with You're the last two games at home for crying out loud so it's just a a remarkable run from and somewhat of the same situation in
0: 79
1: which is they had the great
0: pitching staff flanagan mcgregor martinez and palmer again and their bats just went cold at the wrong time though they go up in that series and then lose so i remember that one very very well but yeah the, the Orioles were kind of that hard luck uh, postseason team they they really were they were a bit denver bronco ish
1: yeah, and they had a, you know 18-year run, really, if you think about it, 66-83, to 83, and uh, came up with, you know, what, two? Well, actually, if you count 66-3 World Series. So they won one in each of those decades. But yeah. they, you know, to, to, to your point earlier, the Mets not only have to overcome a 10-game deficit and, and being in third place in, in mid-August, mid-August, yeah. then they have to beat the Atlanta Braves when their pitching doesn't show up at all. And then they have to beat the juggernaut, Baltimore Orioles, and they managed to do all with aplomb. They went seven and one in the postseason, for crying out loud, thirty-eight and eleven the last uh, bit of the season, last six weeks of the season. So we're talking, you know, we're talking forty-five and twelve. They finished the season at forty-five and twelve, including the postseason. Just and there's some thought. That, there's some thought that Baltimore would have fared better had they played the
0: Giants, had they played. Um, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Had they played uh, the Cubs because those were more no, known quantity teams, and, and they didn't uh, have the staff that that the Mets had. They didn't have well, the pitching staff. They didn't have the pitching staff. The other thing is, uh, and and I didn't bring this up in the uh, in the discussion, but. Uh, the Orioles players were vocally saying that they weren't worried about the Mets and particularly coming off of game one yeah, yeah, and yeah, Cuellar's yeah. victory, Frank yeah. Robinson and a lot of those guys were talking trash. The, oh, they're yeah. nothing. We, you know, we're, we're the best. They are absolutely nothing. And yeah. I just, y- you wonder if they'd have played against a team that was more expected to be there, would they not have been so flippant about, uh, about their opponent? Because, to, to your point, and, and boy, I tell you, you guys like Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, been in the league a long time. They knew the Mets had good pitching. So keep your mouth shut and go yeah. out and do your job. But the big guns for the Orioles did not get the job done. And But, you know, save a tear for poor Dave McNally, who had an incredible series and ended up didn't win a game in the damn thing.
1: yeah yeah and not only that hit a home run you know to do every he did every run he possibly could yeah, yeah to uh to help his team and 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 couldn't get a victory yeah dave mcnally although he won 20 games next year he's part of that amazing staff uh in actually two years later in 71 where for the um Quayar, mcnally palmer and then pat dobson Pat dobson uh win 20 games and so he's part of that he's also part of the first um uh, First free agency class with him and Andy Messersmith. So Dave McNally, even though he did end up in Vegas, uh, horribly overweight. <laughs> That's, uh, I made that up. Uh, other than that, it, it was a very good life for it Dave did. McNally. You're the one who had
0: the Elvis metaphor, and I had to go Friday. straight to Fat Elvis.
1: Yes. There will be peace in the valley sometime. It's a good, good song, man. It's
0: from 69. So, it's always, I listened to it yesterday during, during right. the things. So, so, there you are, the deep dive into the 1969 New York Mets. I highly recommend you, if, I'm sure everybody doesn't want to sit down and watch the five game series. And I'm sorry I didn't actually watch the NLCS. But if you have a chance to watch the forty-minute uh, highlight film of it, it, it is a lot of fun, and you'll see those questionable calls. You'll see Frank Robinson get hit. You'll see the Cleon Jones. Uh, you can make up your mind about J.C. Martin and was he, you know, by the letter of the law, was he out of the base path? Sure. Did he interfere? Who knows? But to Mark's point, had a lot more to do with the with the Orioles. And I don't remember if that was Elrod Hendricks or Andy Etchebarren, who are the catchers. And both of those guys right. are great catchers, but um, they're not being able to yeah. handle the ball well. Yeah.
1: But if you look at that play, it's 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 it's. That's what it was. It was not picking up that ball cleanly, which I think uh, led to the problem with that play. So this was great job, Johnny. Appreciate I hope, that. I hope deep people dive enjoyed it. Three sixty nine, New York Miracle Mets. A great, as Lenny says, a great story told very well. I hope so. And uh, I'm uh, once again, you've set the bar high for next week's deep dive. We're doing them once a week now, ladies and gentlemen. Once a week, uh, and and everyone out there shouldn't I shouldn't limit it to the ladies and gentlemen and uh I'll I'll tell you that uh next week and I haven't I haven't named it quite yet but it's okay. Philadelphia Philadelphia uh sports in the 1970s we go from the worst sports town in all of America according to Sports Illustrated in 1972 where the Flyers are mediocre the Eagles come off a I believe a two win season uh, the Seventy Sixers come off a nine-win season. What's that and even? You and we, we don't you even. You and, know I and yeah, Jeff, even, yes. You and, I and we, Jeff and two other guys could win ten, probably. You know what you would think. Probably. <laughs> and uh, and then of course the uh, Philadelphia Phillies were going through a huge stretch. As a matter of fact, in seventy two, I believe they won fifty four games, and Steve Carlton won half of them. So. They go from there to 1980, where the Eagles are in the uh, Super Bowl. The Phillies are winning the World Series. The Flyers now have won two in the decade. And the 76ers are part of a run with Dr. J and Moses Malone. Well, they'll, they'll pick up a couple of championships as well. So, uh, remarkable turnaround. I don't know how I'm going to organize it. I don't know how it's going to play. I hope to make it interesting and dramatic. And um, we'll see how it goes. But fun stuff with the Mets, Johnny.
0: Well, thank you very much, and I don't envy you because the one good thing about doing, you know, the f- the first one was the three World Series A's. But the one good thing about that is your structure. You're coming up with the structure. It's like, okay, we'll talk about this, this, and then well, then we'll go through the games.
1: But you got a lot to unpack, pal. Yep, sure do. And uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the options today for the Instagram, uh, you know, story, we ended up going with, with well, uh, John you know, avoid musical theater references. And we always, we always use the, he, I don't think so. We always use that. We just ask a question. It's kind of funny. We do it like once a week. Right. And the, 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 first one was, will John's deep dive be under four hours? Yee. I don't know about that. And that was vetoed. That was vetoed. And uh, we decided. why to, not? Uh,
0: well, I, I'd have gone with it. Cause I texted Mark last night. Um, I said, um, I have 17 pages of notes. Yeah. and I was supposed to send Mark. I have to apologize. I was supposed to send him an outline, and and I, I just I could I was cross eyed by the time I was done, and I had like all the stuff, but just to collate it together, and and again I didn't give a third of the information that 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 I read about oh, yeah. and notes oh, yeah. that I'd made, yeah. and I highly recommended everybody. And I wanted to find a couple of stories. I thought the Ron Taylor story about ending up as the toronto blue jays team you know just because his mom got on the wrong boat or didn't make the boat to australia um, was terrific but there's just so much to get through that by the time i got it all collated i was just uh i was just cross-eyed and so as to keep the streak alive um in mentioning it do you know what i did after i was done yes i drank <laughs> Jeff's got it right. It's on the crawl. I watched Hamilton again. Beautiful. I settled beautiful. in. I settled in with a uh, with a scotch and water, and I watched Gosh. it from the beginning to the end again. Ah,
1: I know. Beautiful. That is a that is a just reward for the work you put into this deep dive. Well, I told
0: and, you I was about to Bruce Dern it a couple of times, so it's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing Hamilton was available to me because otherwise, uh, you know, I'd have been. Uh, I, I'd have been uh, what? I, oh, I wish I could remember the character's name uh, from Sunset Boulevard. I'd have been him in the pool at some point. Yeah, William Holden. I don't William, Yeah, I can't remember the
1: character's name, but no. uh, there it is—a eighty-year-old, uh, uh, seventy-year-old <laughs> reference. Well, so,
0: whatever. I just went over yeah. a fifty-one-year-old World Series for God's sake. So Philadelphia, and we're gonna we're we're gonna cover and eighty-one-year-old
1: wow. an reference earlier with Gone with the Wind as well.
0: <laughs> but that now come on. That was a great she, story. She was an investor in Gone with the The only other time she'd been to Atlanta, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about
1: Philadelphia in general. Um, the town, the four the, the four big team, the four teams in Philadelphia, and what a few years in the 1970s did to transform them from the worst sports te- town in all of America to the best. In a in a in a short time, very short time, less than a decade. All right. Well, I'll be making numerous. That's what we're going to do for next week, and I think we 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 might have a. (laughs) There'll be. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, it's Philadelphia in 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 nineteen seventy six, so that's right right in the middle. And and to me, I don't know if this will bear out, but the fact that Rocky came out in nineteen seventy six, which is sort of halfway. Uh, up the mountaintop for, for, for the entire town to get from the worst sports town to the best. Mm-hmm. Maybe, that, maybe that movie and that pride in, in the city is what you know, gave it that extra juice to finish out the rest of the decade and end up as the top team, uh, the top sports town in America. Who
0: knows? Some people we'll, consider we'll, it the greatest sports movie ever. So, yeah, maybe.
1: And, I, and I, would, I would certainly put it in the top five, and I know a lot talk. of people would, yep. would, would disagree. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about all that. Thank you very much. And I think we might make a big announcement next week as well in terms of numbers of shows per week. But we still have to sort some of that out. But this is a, a, a tease of a tease, perhaps. But just know that we are definitely changing the format in the sense that we're going to have a deep dive every single Friday uh, from, from here on until they, uh, until they yank us. Very is there anyone out there that has the power to yank us? And 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 a bigger question is why would anyone care to yank us uh, if they did have the power, John? The two questions for you to, to close the show.
0: Uh, are there people out there with the power? Absolutely. Would would anyone care enough? Absolutely not.
1: There it is. There it is. Go Orioles. All right.
0: That's it. No That's more. It. All right. That's it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, again, our deep dive next Friday, Philadelphia, uh, land of losers, then winners. I don't know. We're trying to we'll come up with it. We should have people. Any, if anybody wants, if every, anybody wants to email Mark what he thinks that his Philadelphia deep dive should be called, um, uh, it, what's the, uh, it's podcastafr at gmail.com. Yeah. Podcastafr I mean, you know. at gmail.com.
1: Because we don't know. I don't know either. That's important to come up with a good name. Yeah, podcastafr at gmail.com. It's a tough one. It's not the Miracle Mets, it's not the big red machine, you know. Those were those amazing are self-explanatory. A's. amazing A's. Those are pretty self-explanatory. Yep. This is the uh, journey of a town from <laughs> the worst to the best and, uh, in a town so,
0: where uh, nothing goes right. <laughs> and, and then, and then and we can, Jeff, you have uh do you have uh, Salisbury Hill by uh, P- uh Peter Gabriel in a town where Everything goes wrong. Yeah, right.
1: and that's the thing too. We we added we added some uh visual aids for this one, and I know folks on the podcast uh, aren't able to see those and uh they were, you know, sort of primitive, but we, we had about over thirty. You did a great Pro- job. Probably could've used could've used fifty, but but the next step is maybe to have video, maybe to have some musical underscore, Johnny. Don't you need, I like, mean we can really make these deep dives pretty fun and pretty uh you know, pretty bells and whistlies. What, what do you say, Jeff?
2: As many bells and whistles as you need, we will get uh, we'll get in here. And, and I love this comment by Herf. He, he wants you to get the Tom Hanks reference in.
0: Golly. Wow. I
2: have a suggestion That's... for a name, too. Sea Batteries and Santa Claus. <laughs> I like that. There like it is.
1: Perfect. Right. I like that. I'm I, sure I we'll like get... that a lot. I'm sure we'll get into uh, it. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the... Uh, the classic Philadelphia fandom tales to some degree uh, in, in that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it, it is fascinating, John. I mean, when I lay it out, I mean, you've got to be somewhat intrigued by... Yeah, absolutely. What, what this town went through and, and the personalities they garnered to their, you know, to their
0: teams. Well, yeah, and, and growing up in the D.C. area, you know, you played the 76ers, Bullets played the 76ers uh, more than once a season, clearly. And uh, Redskins played the uh, or the, the soon to be Washington Dukes played the uh, D.C. Eagles. The DC Dukes played the Eagles a couple of times, and uh, you know, I was familiar with obviously we we'd get some Phillies highlights even because we didn't have a National League team really anywhere near us, so yeah, I I, I remember it. I absolutely do, and I remember that love that Eagle team, um, in 1980, Dick Vermeule's yeah. Eagle team, so uh, yeah, All I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I've spent some time in Philadelphia, and if you don't at some point in that podcast say <laughs> that, uh, the Schuylkill Expressway is the most dangerous road in North America. Then you, you're right. not doing your homework.
1: Yeah. And, and we, we also said we, we came up with a line at the club, too, about Philadelphia. Like a dirty. Well, you, filthy, by we, Mark, means him. That's right. I actually came up with a it.
0: dirty, dirty town full of dirty, dirty people. That's what you called Philadelphia. That's, I'm you gonna, know? We can find that audio and just play it. Mark, Mark Ferreira. It's somewhere. Mike Bauer.
1: Mike Bauer has it.
0: Yeah, he's not going to listen unless you do a a Pittsburgh deep dive. So here we go. Why Sidney Crosby's not as good as everyone thinks, our deep dive coming up. (laughs) All right. For Mark Ferreira, I'm John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive. We will be back on Monday with another edition of After Further Review with Mark and John. Have a great weekend. (music)